Thanks for joining us for the Cybersecurity Podcast. I'm Peter Singer, strategist and senior fellow at New America. And I'm Sarah Sorcher, deputy editor of Passcode, the Christian Science Monitor's new section on security and privacy in the digital age. We think the most important and most interesting part of the cybersecurity story is the people behind the keyboard. On the Cybersecurity Podcast, we'll interview key leaders and thinkers in the field, going beyond the headlines to talk about some of the most pressing trends and newest ideas. First, we'd like to thank Dell for sponsoring this episode. In a few minutes, we'll hear from Walter Parks. He's the noted screenwriter turned film producer who's behind many of your all-time favorite cybersecurity movies, Sneakers and War Games. But first, we're joined by Ben Hayes. Ben is Chief Information Security and Trust Officer at Commonwealth Bank of Australia. Commonwealth is the largest bank, not just in Australia, but in the entire Southern Hemisphere. Dating back to 1911, it now has operations beyond Australia, New Zealand, Fiji, China, Vietnam, India, Indonesia, the USA, and the UK. Ben brings a deep amount of expertise and experience to the role. He's the director and chairman of the Council of Registered Ethical Security Testers and previously worked in security positions with National Australia Bank, UBS, Deutsche Bank, and also the Australian Department of Defense. I interviewed him while he was in town in Washington, D.C., and Sarah was off in Texas enjoying barbecue and digital issues at South by Southwest. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Delighted to be here. So talk to us about the cybersecurity landscape in Asia. How is it the same? How is it different from, say, the global trends overall? There are a lot of consistencies. Australia is quite an unusual country in the Asian market. So why don't I touch briefly on Australia and then broaden it back into the region? Uh, So Australia is a very advanced country. We've got lots of uh, strong uh, economy and domestic companies, but we're also relatively small. We have uh, a few quite large banks. We have uh, one very large telecommunications provider. And of course, we're an island nation. Uh, So that offers us some relatively unique advantages when it comes to things like cyber attacks and cyber challenges. Uh, It gives us the opportunity, if we're able to organize ourselves collectively, to be able to share information, respond to attacks, potentially even stop internet traffic that's malicious from coming into the country right at the internet perimeters. So it's, it's quite different. Uh, It obviously sits in the broader Asian region, and the demand for services from a technology perspective is skyrocketing in that region. Uh, So it's an environment where there's lots of activity that's occurring. There are some very um, well-written reports that describe the nature of technology in many of the Asian countries and talk about the fact that a lot of it is not legitimately purchased. Sometimes it's therefore not being patched, it's not being updated. So the nature of the attack surface and the sort of the cyber threat landscape is actually quite um, dramatically worse in a lot of the Asian countries. If we think about then what it what that's like being a person like me with the responsibility of defending an organization, one of the observations is there's some fantastic services that are available in the private sector that talk about the specific threats that are relevant to America and potentially Europe. We see the same type of activity within our region. Uh, But if you look in some of the commercial sector for some of that intelligence services, you often don't find it. That There are some quite unique threats that we see. They use the same type of attack techniques. They use the same sort of type of uh, weapons, if you like. But often the signatures are quite different. Why do you think that is? I think it's a matter of demand, to be honest. I think there's a lot of focus from the commercial sector protecting the defense industrial base within America. There's a lot of demand focusing at protecting the commercial environment, and there's just a larger number of countries in Europe and companies in Europe. Uh, and I think we see things that are similar but slightly different. It's probably just a factor of demand. But it does mean that the onus is then on us to lean into the intelligence ourselves, to lean into understanding the threat actors, the adversaries, their techniques, and their intents. Well, you lead an organization, though, that you describe, you know, you have this almost base within Australia, but you also have to do operations in all of these other countries. How do you navigate between not just the different threats that you're seeing, but also, uh, as you put it, your ability to sort of close off access for some kinds of threats, but not for others, given the sort of geographic location, but also arguably the governance side, the political side of it? How are you navigating between the sovereignty elements within Asia? Great question. It certainly has some complexity. And, and often that starts from the perspective of ensuring that your 
respectful of the cultures that you're working with and also respectful of the regulatory regimes that you're operating within. Uh, in many of those countries, there's a requirement for engaging local staff, so locally engaged staff. Uh, and, and we're quite fortunate in the sense that we've got some fantastic people in each of those countries that have been with us for some time and understand how the bank works. The model that we look to deploy is uh, to have a regional oversight capability. We base that actually out of Hong Kong uh, and to pull together memorandums of understanding between each of those operating entities in each of the countries so that they can call upon the external services or the actual the group-wide services for information security. There's a lot of capability that rapidly scales out to those regions and to those countries. Things like the ability to be able to do penetration testing, to do intelligence sharing, to do things like incident response activities. There's a lot of human labor activities that are high skill, uh, but they rapidly scale. Uh, then when it comes to actually securing the infrastructure, that obviously needs to be quite specific and it depends on the environment, it depends on the particular vendor mix, it depends on the particular technology flavors that are being used in the country. Now, one of the things that's interesting in your background is that you've worked with Americans, both in your corporate hat, but also when you were working in the public sector side, when you were with the Department of Defense on the Australian side. Mm -hmm. How would you describe the differences in the American approach, not just in terms of the technology or the policy, but maybe the mentality of how we approach cybersecurity versus what you see in Australia versus what you see in Asia, et cetera? At a practitioner level, I think there's a lot of similarities. I think at the higher level public conversation, there's some quite intentional, I won't say departures, but specifics that personally I've been driving at within the Australian market, uh, and I think it is very relevant for us. And, and that is a desire to make sure we frame the issue in a very, very balanced way that really underscores the importance of cybersecurity not just from the perspective of national sovereignty or from the perspective of defence against cybercrime or malicious attack, but actually in that positive mind frame, which is the confidence that it provides to the growth of the digital economy. Uh, that's a very big opportunity for Australia. Our digital economy is $79 billion and it's predicted to double in the next five years. Uh, that's part of a global trend. Uh, Forbes estimates it will get to about $1.36 trillion uh, by 2020. And in the American context, that's a growth of around $365 billion in addition to what it is today. Uh, it, it's my belief, it's our belief, that the ingredient for that to happen is actually consumer confidence, it's merchant company confidence for the ability to transact online. And cybersecurity and the related privacy and trust that it gives to the people that are receiving the benefits of that cybersecurity is one of the most important ingredients. So I think from a public policy perspective, from a narrative perspective in terms of how we've been seeking to frame that issue, that, that's been a very important ingredient. It's shaped a lot of the activities that we have undertaken. And we have been quite vocal in terms of what we refer to as outreach. So within the Australian market, there is a cyber strategy that is being um, completed at the moment by the federal government uh, that is accumulating quite soon with a variety of uh, activities and some initiatives, some of which have already been announced. Uh, and it's our uh, contribution or sort of in impetus to that to, to seek to try and address a very broad-based perspective of cybersecurity that does focus on the digital economy. And how do you balance, how do you compare that to the US? Do we have a broad-based approach here or is it do we have the same kind of cu customer confidence in this digital economy given that for example Australia is going further in protecting credit card transactions than we have here? How would you compare that confidence? How would you compare that broad-based my external perspective, and it is only an external perspective because I no longer live in this country, is that the topic of trust is more readily spoken about by the tech sector from the perspective of consumer impact of their technologies. Uh, and then the topic of cybersecurity is more heavily weighted from a law enforcement protection against malicious threat, national sovereignty perspective. Uh, I suspect that there's probably the opportunity to link those things together in a way that hasn't yet been done. It may, of course, be happening, and I just haven't seen it. Um, but, but that would be my observation. So let's focus in on the banking side. Talk to us about the organizational approach of how the bank deals with information security. How are you brought into the strategic decisions of the overall business? 
Fantastic question. And, and I, let me let me describe um, one important difference between the two banking sectors, and that is one of market concentration and consumer practice. Uh, so I, I have lived previously in Washington, D.C., um, and, and certainly my experience of living here, uh, you, you used a checkbook a lot. Um, that was a, a typical way of conducting commerce. Uh, and then there are also a lot of banks, and that's a good thing, lots of competition, that's a great thing. Uh, in our market, we've got a different amount of concentration. The Commonwealth Bank, as you described in your introduction, it's a very large bank. Uh, we bank about a third, if not more, of the population in our retail channels. And we're a full-service bank that are involved in wealth management. We have compulsory 401k in Australia uh, and a whole variety of other um, capabilities and corporate banking, institutional banking. So if you're you're handling about a third, that means you're roughly touching uh, you know, how many out of the overall transactions, because it's not just a third, it's who's interacting right. with that. Is it is it two thirds of overall transactions or? We would see one half of all the transactions in the country that okay. either be acquired by a piece of our infrastructure, by a, a point of sale device or an ATM, uh, or they'll be crediting or debiting one of our um, business banking customers or one of our retail banking customers. So, so our visibility across that market is very big. The consumer practice then is not to use checkbooks. I don't know anybody that owns one. We we don't have them uh, quite soon. I think they probably won't exist within our market as even a financial instrument. Uh, so we, we, we use electronic funds transfer or domestic funds transfer, as we call it. Uh, it's also a country that's benefited from about 23 years worth of continuous growth in terms of the economy. So it is a great place if you are a bad guy to seek to try and uh, attack. Uh, in fact, if you if you look at our market concentration and contrast that with the largest bank in America, which has about 7%, if you were to send a malicious email to a .au, .au for Australia email address, you've got at least a one in three chance, if not more, if you think about our other interactive channels with our customers, of hitting one of our customers. So we see a lot of external threat. Uh, we see, you know, if you are, of course, successful and you do compromise a customer's PC, which is the typical avenue for attack in both countries, uh, then, of course, once they log into something like internet banking, it's the electronic funds transfer mechanism that you'll typically try and exploit. So we live in quite a high threat environment. Um, th that's the flavor of the cybercrime aspect. Uh, so, so to your question in terms of how do we get involved, I have... It's a fantastic and amazing industry that I'm working in. It's a delight to be working in an industry that moves so fast. One of the ways that it's moved very fast in the last five to six years in particular uh, has been the evolution of a capabilities that were an attribute of technology. Uh, security would often, I think, historically have been considered something for the technology department to worry about, and it was, like I say, an attribute, then it might get discussed or commented on by maybe uh, the, the, the audit committee or maybe the general risk controls assessment that would be, would be performed by an external auditor. Uh, these days, security is not an attribute of technology. In fact, it speaks to brand confidence, it speaks to consumer trust. It's both a set of services that must run, that must run well, that must have control efficacy, they must work, but it's also a set of business considerations. Uh, one of the things that we have done is really pulled a lot of that decision-making up and into some higher-order groups within the organisation. So my team will get involved in a variety of work that might be determining where the organization's risk appetite sits on particular cyber threats, uh, but also actually... What would be an example of that you can speak to? Well, determining a set of um, non-negotiables, if you like, a baseline level of security uh, based on the types of threats that we see, based on the types of attacks that we see competitors receiving, based on our own experience, of course, and really being comfortable to make some of those business judgment decisions, being comfortable to say, we think this is the minimum set of security that's required. We think there's a category of... Um, uh, discretion that is appropriate for each individual business unit to have. Uh, and that might relate to some innovation work that they're doing or some work that they're doing that doesn't involve customer data, but just a higher tolerance for the unusual to occur. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to protecting the core brand, the privacy and the trust of our customers, defining a minimum set of expectations that must be met. That might sound obvious. It's actually quite a distinct departure from where a lot of the financial services industry has been in the past. 
where typically a pure risk management process would apply. And often technology's role in that was to provide options and services, and there'd be a set of business judgment that would be made. I think with an environment that moves so quickly uh, and so fast, that business judgment is hard to, it's hard to apply, it's hard to be informed unless you're in the trench one of the practitioners and involved in those kind of a threats. So banking has a reputation within the field of, to put it bluntly, being one of, if not the best at cybersecurity compared to other business sectors. Besides this organizational approach, what are other, you think, lessons that might be drawn from other sectors that maybe aren't doing so well at cybersecurity right now? I'm not so sure in terms of the lessons. I think actually my feeling on this topic is a burden of responsibility. Uh, and, and that is actually financial services is often ahead. They have often looked at these problems for longer. They've often had uh, a set of adversaries that have been very front of mind. There's been organized crime um, that sit obviously alongside things like nation state activities and hacktivists. But organized crime has been there for some time. So we've been at it for a little bit longer. Often we've been invested uh, in the topic um, to a higher quantum of investment. The incentives well. are much the better The incentives aligned. are higher. So, so my sense on that topic is actually one where there's a, there's a collective accountability and, in fact, strength, and I think particularly in a country like Australia, but I think it extends to, the, to America, I think uh, strength comes from collective response, collective intelligence, uh, collective information in terms of the threats that we're dealing with. And my particular belief is that that comes... Um, uh, definitely by um, sharing information within your sector. But the real opportunity is to have a consumer-centric perspective to this, and that requires sharing information across sectors. So one of the topics that we've been heavily involved with in the debate within Australia is that issue of intelligence sharing. And that's often looked at in the context of what can a government or your domestic government share with you when it comes to what they see in terms of threats. That's interesting. We're keen to have those conversations too. But my first uh, category of value that I think can come from intelligence sharing is actually the private sector sharing information between itself. If you think about a world when the telecommunications environment shares with the financial services environment that also then shares with some of the top online retailers for the country, uh, you don't need to go too far through that list before you've made quite a significant impact to the consumer's safety um, by having that rapid free flow of information. Mm -hmm. So you talked about how, you know, you, but more importantly, financial services has been at it for a long time because the threats have been there for so long. How are you seeing the threats evolve? What's different, say, today than it was a year ago? I think the industry is one that only adds. If I look at the time that I've been in the industry, we have uh, had a, a history of starting with things like script kiddies, as they were known, but people looking to do defacements. Uh, we've then added to that just a whole category of threat actors and a whole category of approaches. Uh, our our categorization of those is to think about nation states, is to think about organized crime and to think about hacktivists. Uh, the sophistication of the attack is definitely on the rise. Uh, we are seeing... Um, the same type of attack techniques being propagated by almost all three of those actors. They obviously have got different objectives uh, and, and nation states and organised crime are, are typically not looking to um, cause significant damage to your environment. In fact, if, if anything, they're looking to be a beneficiary of a successful organisation. They want you to be successful. Uh, but equally, hacktivism is one of those issues that's that's certainly becoming a lot more prominent uh, and that's not always the case. Let's, let's dig in on that. How does that manifest it, itself differently? You know, in essence, you've got one group that wants to take down the system, the other that's operating almost like a parasite. How do you experience that different from the defender side? Uh, I think it's a more complex problem. Uh, I think in the category of hacktivists, you don't necessarily need to be guilty of what they want to accuse you of. Um, you, you may also just have the misfortune of your company name sounding a little bit like something that they were Googling. Uh, equally, they may have a legitimate grief, um, but just want to prosecute that agenda in, in a way that's that's not um, particularly great. Uh, so it makes it harder for you to understand, if you like, where that threat's going to come from. It makes you a little, it makes it a little bit harder to predict what that's going to look like. Uh, uh, and then again, they've also got access to a similar degree of sophistication of tools. If you look at that activity at the moment, we generally see hacktivism being pro prosecuted by people that are already reasonably technical, technically savvy. I think that is actually going to change over the next two to five years. And I think we will see 
hacktivism for hire, if you like, and we will see uh, typically non-technology-centric social issues being prosecuted with a set of technology tools. So I, I see that as a problem that's going to grow, uh, and I see that as definitely a problem under which we need to collectively work together as an industry. What do the technologies on your side look like in this period of two to five years out? So we've seen all sorts of you know, new technologies being implemented into banking, whether it's you know, biometrics or behavioral, even things like you know, selfie pay. What does this new era look like? Well, at the same time that we've had those threats evolve, we have also had evolutions in technology and evolutions in commercial practices within organizations. Uh, one of those aspects is the movement of workloads to the cloud. We've also seen uh, much across all sectors, uh, across all companies, a much greater reliance on third parties and suppliers. So in my discussions about this topic, uh, I no longer talk about um, the objective of ensuring that the bad guys don't get in uh, and that we make sure we keep them out. Uh, and it's not because I think the security industry has lost that battle. I just actually don't think that there is an in and an out anymore. Organizations have evolved and they've evolved to a complex web of a number of third parties bringing together technology and business processes to deliver outcomes for their customers. Uh, so that adds complexity. Uh, at the same time, the technology landscape, it's evolved too. We have artificial intelligence coming into the play. We've got cloud computing coming into the play. So the landscapes become more complex. One of the areas where we're heavily investing is in the category of cyber intelligence and cyber response. Uh, the industry historically has looked at tools like SIEM products or security event um, monitoring and response type products. Uh, and, and our approach has been slightly different to that. So we are leveraging an open source big data stack, leveraging some of the more modern technologies with Hadoop clusters, data analytics, behavioral analysis, um, but really very much in an open source manner so that we can plug and drop and plug in and plug out tools as the industry continues to evolve over some time. Uh, and I think that approach is one that's not capability driven. Sometimes when you look or when you uh, look at something like the security industry, perhaps through an audit lens or perhaps through a, a standards framework, you look just for capabilities and good security is you have one of everything. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes you look through it through a technology lens, which is actually you need to have one of every product because your competitor or somebody that you know has bought one and they must be good and you don't want to be left behind. Uh, our approach is neither of those. I mean, we have a lot of technologies, we have a lot of capabilities, but it's very much to be much more intelligence or threat actor led. Um, to leverage things like the cyber kill chain, and there's a few that are like it that have come up, but to really have that strong focus on what are we seeing, what are other people seeing, what do we think is likely, uh, and to tune our resources to um, the categories of attack that we think we're uh, most likely to see. I think, therefore, then our focus is very much on control efficacy. We have a routine process of testing our controls and actually one component of my team whose day job it is just quite simply to break into the bank. And that's not traditional penetration testing, which often looks at a particular project or a particular solution and does some specific testing to the things that have changed. They actually get the, the, the fun exercise of having real world objectives, starting off with no physical access, no system access. Uh, and seek to go and execute a particular objective on the target. Fantastic. So uh, we're getting to the close. And as you may be aware, we end all of our interviews by asking our guests their favorite depiction of cybersecurity in the world of fiction. It can be movie, TV, book, whatever. What is it that you enjoy? Or it can be defined as you love to hate it. So when it comes to the fictional side of cybersecurity, what inspires you? Oh, I think the real world offers far too many examples for me to choose from rather than fiction. <laughs> so uh, there is a picture in particular that I uh, have often reflected on, and it's actually, I'm sure we could find it on the internet, it is a barrier that is um, uh, across a road, and the barrier is down, and it's quite clear that cars are meant to stop at the barrier, use a swipe pass, 
provide some po point of proof of authentication and there's a validation verification process that's meant to occur. And the picture is taken from an aerial vantage point and it's been snowing. And what you can see is a whole bunch of tire tracks that just go either side of this barrier because there's no fence either side. And I think that's often something that I reflect on. It's often something that I think about. Uh, good, You have to think about the human aspect, the human psychology aspect when you're coming up with security. It's all about control efficacy. It's about testing the controls. And it's about making sure that you don't have um, inappropriate confidence in a control that you haven't tested, that you haven't watched it being used. And if you have a barrier, um, make sure you have fences either side. So now we have a suggestion for a screensaver for everyone working in this field. Thanks very much for joining us. Delighted. Thank you. In a few minutes, we'll hear from Walter Parks. But first, a word from our sponsor. Being digitally secure takes leadership from the very top. Brett Hansen, Executive Director of Dell Data Security Solutions, explained how C-level executives and the best technology combined to keep enterprises safe at Passcode's stage at South by Southwest in Austin, Texas. I can't tell you how many times I'm walking to a CIO or CSISO's office and they say, well, but my C-suite doesn't want to do it this way. And so you have to start at the top and you have to consider what your behavior does and what it shows your team. If the C-suite isn't adopting cybersecurity principles and behavior that makes sense, you know your rest of your team is not. Yeah. So it's got to be a combination of an increased education, but then also the tools that allow your employees to work the way they want to work, allow them to be mobile, allow them to be collaborative, but still maintain a security posture. Too many of the tools that companies are using today, from signature AVAM to legacy full disk encryption, really aren't allowing employees to behave in the manner they're going to and yet maintain a risk profile. Again, if it was working, we wouldn't see the number of attacks and the number of breaches we see today. So there has to be a combination of education, awareness, embracing by the Swiss all the way down, but then also complement that with a combination of security solutions that really do work in today's world. Learn more about how to bring people together with technology for better data security at Dell.com slash data security. Up next, we have our interview with Walter Parks. As you all know, each episode, Peter and I ask our guests about their favorite depiction of cybersecurity in fiction. And inevitably, one out of at least three of them say sneakers or war games. So we're thrilled to have Walter, the force behind both movies, on to talk to you all today. So as listeners of the podcast know, we usually end our interviews by asking people's favorite fictional depictions of the world of cybersecurity. And time and again, whatever the person's background, whether they were working in business or the military or a hacker, they kept coming back to the movie Sneakers. And so we thought, what could be better than to bring in the man who created it and talk to him on the podcast? So we're delighted to be joined by Walter Parks. He's a noted screenwriter turned film producer. Among his many projects are War Games, uh, for which he received a Best Original Screenplay Oscar nomination, Sneakers, uh, one of the favorites of our field, but also many other projects like Awakenings, which was a Best Picture Oscar nominee, the Men in Black series, Kite Runner, Gladiator, Minority Report, AI, Deep Impact, Twister, Amistad, and so on. So thank you very much for joining us and uh, hopefully making a, at least not just our audience, but our past guests really happy to hear from you. Well, I'm happy to hear that they uh, appreciate the work. So um, take us back there. Let's Let's get to the start of it. What was the origin for you for movies like War Games and Sneakers? How did they come about? What drew you into this topic? Uh, sure. And it's funny that those two films in particular provided an early career object lesson in how to do it and how not to do it. <laughs> um, for all, we'll start with uh, War Games, which I wrote with uh, Lawrence Lasker, my partner on many projects back then. For all of the tech issues of the picture, having to do with mutually assured destruction and sort of the incipient internet, uh, early gaming, et cetera. It didn't begin with any of that. It began with a character premise. Uh, I had read a, a book about a family who had a child who didn't speak until he was 18 months old. And I've never forgotten this. His first words were they had, were Catholic, they already had another child had said about his now baby brother, first words, 
mom, is the baby crying because he's hungry or do you think there's something wrong? And this kid was a super genius born into a normal family. And it struck me as a very interesting story to tell. Larry had been looking into actually Stephen Hawking at the time. This was, you know, quite a while ago. And just the idea of that you might be able to understand how the universe works and not have anyone to tell it to. And we sort of thought that would there be an interesting story that had to do with the kind of hero's journey of this kid who is sort of unmoored vis-a-vis finding a, a technological place that he can relate to, and a, a, a scientist who sort of needed a son, needed someone to mentor. That's all we began with. And we did research about that. And I was very, very lucky, uh, somewhat into that research, to meet a man who I think you know named uh, Peter Schwartz. Uh, Peter Schwartz at that time was with SRI, Stanford Research Institute. And we l- pitched very little more than what I just told you. And he, he looked at me and said, looked at the two of us and said, have you ever been to the Stanford Coffee House? You should go there. They have something, and I believe it was the first Pong game. Take a look at that, and then try to get yourself on a tour of NORAD and look at the missile displays. Try to get yourself on a tour, just, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so he said, if you look at Pong and you look at those missile displays, you'll, I think you'll see sort of the equivalent of your two characters. At which point we wrote that down and said, thank you very much. (laughs) And we sort of had the movie then. And we continued the research about how kids were interacting with computers and the sort of the uh, uh, incipient culture around computing that was growing at the time. Fade out. The movie's being made. And as part of the research of that movie, we went to uh, computer conventions and computer security conventions. And we're talking quite a ways back there. We're talking in the 80s. I remember we, we had heard the term sneakers. We thought that it meant the kid programmers at IBM as opposed to the brown shoes or the adult uh, uh, programmers. I remember we met a guy. He was a, uh, I think he was a Swedish security expert. We said, are there any sneakers around here we could talk to at this convention? And he said, why would you want to talk to them? It was clear that he heard something different when we said the word sneakers, and he went on to explain sneakers, tiger teams, black hatters, people who are hired by either companies or the government to test the security by actually staging break-ins. And we said, well, this is fantastic. It's a high-tech dirty dozen, which is exactly how he pushed it to the studio. It's a high-tech dirty dozen, but you notice there's no character there. It took us seven years to figure out that script and get it written. So this question about the character is really interesting because you essentially created this archetype of the hacker that's been seen you know, in, in fiction and, ever, and it's, it's sort of repeated itself again and again in subsequent movies in various ways. And how would you say that, it's, that you've seen it evolve? And what do you think about the current crop of depictions of hackers that you're seeing now with CSI Cyber and Mr. Robot? A great question. I don't know if we invented it as much as reported on it or sort of observed it. Uh, quite honestly, the, 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 the David Lightman that was written in the script was a less accessible character than the one that was co-created by Matthew Broderick. You know, it's a partnership between the script and the actor. I'm a fan of Mr. Robot. I think it's really fascinating. But I have to say that I think that sort of taciturn, socially disconnected, in his case, you know, seriously damaged guy who finds solace in the dark corners of cyberspace. I don't know if that uh, uh, jives with my experience. You know, I always, in, in stories, we always look for the grand irony. I think one of the great ironies of the last 30 years is that we all thought that with the rise of computing would be the rise of this kind of cadre of disenfranchised youth that would never talk to people and just have machine relationships. But in fact, it created more social connections across the globe and more use of some version of the English language than ever before in human history. So I think that's a really interesting character, particularly his relationship with Mr. Robot. I don't think it's that way. And, and I, I, I find that the, the people in the field on either side of the law tend to either be, you know, technologists who do this for all sorts of good technological reasons, and a lot of gamer mentality, where you're excited about the idea that you can manipulate information from, from a distance. And I think that's at, at heart what was exciting for us seeing David Lightman in war games. I think that's what excited him. Not, he didn't want to particularly destroy anything. He wanted to play a game. 
And you think of the magic carpet that that computer provided for him and Ali Sheedy and pretending you can drive, fly, fly to uh, Europe and all the things he did. I find that a little bit closer to the reality than some of the media archetypes I've seen. What about on the sneaker side, the idea of the team and the very different, you know, kind of archetypes that are within that? Because you use the Dirty Dozen as a parallel. I mean, it in turn had sort of very classic, uh, almost kind of literary figures. Um, same thing in sneakers. Well, you know, we we were we were conscious of that, Peter, but we also looked into. You know, I mean, John Draper is a cousin of those guys, you know, the original phone hacker. Um, the, the, I, we know the people who used to be in natural, uh, in, uh, national security often joined the private sector, like Sidney Poitier's character did. The fact that uh, Redford was a fugitive from justice is just sort of a good idea story-wise. So, yeah, I, I think what you're asking is, was that architecture dictated by the reality we saw or the necessities of the story? And I think it was sort of an even mix, mm -hmm. quite honestly. We had heard about, by the way, a, a, a programmer who was uh, uh, sightless, who could actually hear code. And that was where uh, the uh, David Strathairn character came from. And so, I mean, clearly these movies have inspired a lot of people, even on our podcast, as Peter mentioned, people who are very senior in the field are pointing to this movie and said, saying how, you know, when they were just getting started, they would look at this and say, I want a van, I want to be, you know, part of this community of people. So, I mean, what do you think about that? And why do you think that movies like Sneakers still resonate so powerful, so powerfully with this community? Well, look, we, we got a few key things right, which is good. Um, and, and this is conversations Peter, you and I have had in the past, cybersecurity and cybernetic issues are by their nature sort of abstract. And what the trick is, whether it's through a novel or through a screenplay for a movie, is to how do you kind of create um, real life urgency to abstract ideas? But how do you do it authentically? So I think that we succeeded in that regard with sneakers. I also think people like it because we didn't present them as, I mean, they're underdogs, but they're not strange, marginalized people. They're people who either had their own problems in their relationships, but have also some of them had great relationships. And the fact that this sort of a, a community of people who were trusted each other and were engaged in this rather fascinating uh, uh, endeavor and then got in trouble together. I think it sort of has some, again, with your question, Peter, some of the contours of, of the basic group caper story, but we are, and we're adhering to those genre requirements. You know, you're hired by the good guys to get something from the bad guys. It turns out you were hired by the bad guys, and now what are you going to do? These are kind of essential narrative tropes. So, there's something we say in our business, at least in our office a lot, which is the, the more obscure the scenery, the more comfortable the chair. Meaning if you're going to ask the audience to deal with aliens in, in New York City, give them a comfortable chair. In the case of Men in Black, that's a cop movie. If you really look at the first Men in Black, it is structured very much with the tropes of the cop movie. And I think that you know when we watched War Games, I looked at North by Northwest. I looked at Hitchcock movies. So. I think that there are story issues that connect to your community, and we at least did enough research to be fairly accurate in the depiction of the issues. So if you were setting out to create sneakers today, so you went into the studio and said, you know, it's it's Dirty Dozen, or you know, now you would probably say it's Fast and Furious in cybersecurity. I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, <laughs> trademark that for my own pitches. Um, but you know, what would be different about it? How would you approach it differently today or the same? You know, how would you approach this story in the cybersecurity world of today? It's, it's a great question. By the way, there has been some conversations about whether or not sneakers could or should become a television show. I'm going to answer through a, 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 a quick analogy. Um, about three years ago, we had a screening of war games at the founders lunch up at Google, you know, and then we had a conversation about it. And it was clear one of the things we got right with War Games was that it wasn't Ma Bell, and it wasn't the government, and it wasn't IBM who would change the world, but it would be kids either in their garage or in their bedroom. There was a sort of a rock and roll thing to David Lightman by himself 
creating technologies that turned out to be the way it worked out. So that was accurate, and therefore it's embraced. I think that if we were to approach sneakers now, I, I would deal with private sector, I would deal with the phenomenon of that for all of our conversations about incursions of the government into our privacy, that we give it away, we give it away gladly. I would rather you know where I am so the Uber car gets there quicker. I would rather trust you and not have to get my wallet out and just assume that all that billing's gonna be okay. And I, I, so in the same way that in war games we focused more on the kid as the sort of disruptor in the system, I think that I would focus less on the big actors, governmental actors, countries, the mob and all that, because I think what's happening is more on the individual actor level. And, and, and I think you could, listen, I think you could create a very interesting story that is elucidating about an aspect of cybersecurity, which you know we talk about, we don't do anything about. Interesting. It's interesting that you say that because um, they're, you know, right around the time that the Snowden leaks were um, first starting to come out a couple of years ago, people brought up also, you know, the movie Sneakers and how, you know, there was this decryption device and intercepting people, you know, something that could get into everything. And this, even though obviously, you know, different things, the same players, same kind of concept. So as you're hearing about these current events and hearing about the Snowden leaks and the NSA surveillance, I mean, what are, you, what are your thoughts on you? Well, the first thought, thought honestly, is I'm, I'm shocked that so many of the issues that we talked about and talked to experts about are the same issues now. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I don't, other than a proliferation, and you know, uh, I, one of the presentations today, and I was reading also, look, the more complex a system is, the more vulnerable it is. As was noted in the, uh, Fred Kaplan's book, you know, we, we were lucky to have the consul of a very bright na man named Willis Ware at the Rand Corporation when we first started doing our research for war games. And he was the one who said, listen, the only secure computer system is the one no one can use. So it's bigger because we're all using it. But at the end of the day, how much conversation is about password protection, about cryptography, you know, about phishing, about uh, Trojan horses, about putting viruses in the system. So I I'm actually uh, surprised that at its basic mechanics, it doesn't like it's changed all that much in terms of what are the key issues that are on the table. And Ronald Reagan, too, there was a you know, New York Times report about how he was influenced by war games and started to ask his senior military personnel if something like that could really happen that ultimately led to his first information security decree. So, I mean, what did you think, you know, what do you think about that? And where else have you seen the impact of your work in real life policy? Well, I think... Uh I think that's that's the granddaddy of it. Um, when did you find out about it? Well, I knew back then because there was a very respected uh, Washington journalist named Lou Cannon, who actually reported on Reagan watching the film and bringing it up to his cabinet. And, you know, this could happen. I didn't know until Fred interviewed me that that went past that. That in fact, that ultimately you know, it was part of the development of the first cybersecurity laws. So how did that make you feel when you first heard that? Good, actually, because <laughs> I mean, I have this tiny bit of, of, of not guilt exactly, but there've been times I've asked myself that Larry and I kind of, uh, you know, uh, turn in uh, people who are in many cases, very destructive into heroes. I mean, in other words, is there a sort of a, 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 a hacker iconography which is not necessarily a good thing? I'm very happy to find out. I, we're connected now because I gave a talk to the Hewlett Packard Foundation about cybersecurity that in fact those movies seem to do more to inspire people on your side of the fence just to kind of get into the, the field. So I'm glad, I'm glad about that. Um, and I'm particularly glad to know that it didn't just, you know, create the forerunners of the Sony hack. I mean, the, 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 but listen, it's a technology, right? It's, a, it's neutral, it's, a, it's all morally neutral. The, the problem is, is that it's easier to 
tear down things than it is to build things. Just that's the way the world works. And systems go toward entropy as opposed to not. So therefore, the more we're dependent on very complex systems, the more there's a likelihood of breakdowns and security risks. And it's just in the nature of things. And, you know, it's a fascinating uh, uh, a challenge going forward. So what are some of the lessons that you have as a storyteller for the cyber security community writ large in terms of telling its own story? Well, I, I was thinking about that even today in the, uh, uh, the first sessions of the conference here. Okay, so you take war games. So I sh we should add, we're, we're taping this at the New America Cybersecurity Conference where you know we've been talking on all of these different questions from encryption to broadening up the field to narrative issues. Mm -hmm. So, you know, narrative is one of those words that particularly in the last 10 or 15 years seems to be omnipresent. It's the narrative and the counter narrative and we need a new narrative. And I, I think it's a word that's thrown around often without a real understanding of what it means. But regardless of that, it's a very powerful thing. I mean, we, we, we see it <laughs> from, you know, Nazi Germany, and that was one narrative that took hold, even though it was false, but it's powerful. And, but it can be powerful in a good way. So the fact that a president of the United States could understand accurately something about the complexity of the missile control system at that time, because he saw a story about a kid that broke into one of our systems just wanting to play a game, that's pretty good. That, that allowed a sort of intellectual exchange that provided a currency to discuss these things. But as the world gets more complex, narratives can have a deleterious effect. Just because a narrative is sticky, just because it's easy to understand doesn't mean it's true. Uh, I, I, I talked to you about this earlier. I, I, I noticed uh, today at this conference a lot of conversation about the uh, in, Internet of Things which is a wonderful idea. I mean, as a screenwriter or as a movie maker, I say, that's fantastic, you know? <laughs> I, I've already thought, gee, if we do a sneakers, you know, the bad guy, you realize, oh my God, he drinks tea. Oh, that's a smart teapot. We're gonna hack through his teapot. It's great, okay? And I asked myself, the question though, is that if you took all the potential threats and risks that are associated with that sort of thing and put it in, a pile here, and you put all of the more difficult to understand day-to-day -day issues that you professionals deal with in cybersecurity that are much less splashy, much less catchy, um, and much more abstract, I su suspect that pile is much bigger. But are we talking about the Internet of Things because it is an important threat or it's an interesting idea that reporters can get a hold of and that you could describe to policymakers? So it, it's a double-edged sword, I guess is what I'm saying. It's a very valuable tool, and I, th a tool, and, and I think that, that it's an essential one, particularly for people who are trying to communicate complex ideas to policymakers. But it can also be a misleading one. Uh, I'll just add one other thing. There is, to me, th there's an essential definition of what a story is, which is it's how a protagonist overcomes obstacles in the way of him, he or she uh, uh, achieving an urgent goal. So I've started that sentence with a, a protagonist. In other words, there are actors involved. People do things. And I, I, I find it very interesting in the world of cybersecurity how little uh, uh, I hear about or how relatively little attention is put on the actor itself as opposed to te the technologies. Mm -hmm. You know, these don't, are not happening in a vacuum. You know, there's either a large actor who hires people with some kind of idea, but the people who are doing this, from a story point of view, I want to know about them. And I'm just wondering in, as a way of sort of framing it and policy of more uh, attention to that might be helpful. Yeah, the way we talk about it is the most important space is the space between keyboard and chair. Yeah, the, the human side of it. Um, right. So we're getting to the closing part of the interview. And normally we ask someone to name their favorite depiction of cybersecurity in fiction. Well, it's not fair to ask that of you. Oh, go so ahead. Oh, <laughs> um, well, I think, well, well, okay. No, no, yeah, no, 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 no. All right. You almost <laughs> open yourself. So rather, I think it's interesting. What is, so you work in the world of entertainment. 
how do you entertain yourself in terms of what is your favorite fiction for enjoyment purposes as opposed to, you know, I'm I'm working in the field, I'm judging this script, I'm watching this show because I'm looking to see how good this actor is. When you turn to the world of fiction, you know, what is your favorite from the just pure entertainment side? Well, I have to put uh, make a caveat right now is that I do tend to read on an electronic device, which is not good for my reading because while I'm reading, I am also wasting a lot of time doing stuff on the internet. But I, I would have to say um, that the, the thing I don't read is anything to do with technology. I mean, I'm, you know, my favorite author is Graham Greene, for example, is, you know, they're, they're highly structured stories with great external plots that deal with very complex spiritual and emotional issues in a way that puts characters on their fate doing extraordinary things. So uh, I, but, but I, I find it difficult for, to, to throw myself into you know, the equivalent of a Tom Clancy novel or something. And it might be for the very reason you're intuiting. Because we do a good amount of work in that world, I tend to see that as work as opposed to losing myself in fiction. So I guess maybe I would ask a slightly different version of that question is, so in the vein that we ask everybody who works in cybersecurity what their favorite depiction of that is in fiction, for you, I'm curious, who in the cybersecurity world do you follow or what researchers or what, you know, outlets or anything, you know, where do you well, get your information? Uh, it's usually more about the um, uh, case by case. That's the wonderful thing about my job. You know, you're doing a movie about gladiators. You got to learn all about mm -hmm. <laughs> ancient Rome and, and, and sort of works that way. However, I must say, um, so the, I, don't, I don't have a regular diet of that sort of thing. I used to be a, a director for uh, another wonderful thing called the uh, Center for a New American Security. And R Richard Danzig, who is, mm -hmm. uh, uh, I guess, what used to be the head of the board there, wrote an article for them called, I think it's called Surviving on a Diet of Poisoned Fruit, which is a very, very interesting article. And, and, and very straightforward, sort of about trying to find what's the minimum standard from a pure national security point of view of what needs to be done vis-a-vis -a, -vis, uh, a cybersecurity. And I, I just think, Richard had been the uh, Secretary of the Navy, and he's a very bright man. I'm just, it was interesting to see his lawyer military mind look at the cybersecurity problem. And I think it's a, it's a very good piece of work. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Very glad to have you on. My great pleasure. Thanks. Thanks again to Ben Hayes for a great conversation, and to Walter Parks for joining us this month, and again to Dell for sponsoring this episode. Join us next month when we interview more of cybersecurity's biggest leaders and thinkers. Be sure to subscribe to us at the New America iTunes and SoundCloud at the Cybersecurity Podcast, and I'm on Twitter at Peter W. Singer. And you can follow me at Sarah Sorcher. Sign up for Passcode at www.csmpasco.com. This podcast was directed by John Williams and Amanda Gaines. Talk to you in a month. Thank you for listening to this podcast from New America and the Christian Science Monitor. This recording carries a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial 4.0 international license. Music thanks to MK2 for their songs, The Big Score and Cold Killer. To learn more about Passcode by the Christian Science Monitor, please visit passcode.csmonitor.com. To learn more about New America, please visit newamerica.org.